Hey, what up guys? Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast, coming off of another big trivia win. Reno Public House DJ Trivia. <laughs> Shout out to the other members of the team that are probably better than me in most of the questions. But anyways, thank you for joining me tonight, Centered from Reality Podcast, or I guess today, whenever you're listening. I'm recording this Thursday evening, but you're maybe listening to this Friday, late Thursday. I don't care. You're, if you're listening, I'm happy. But anyways, sorry for a little bit of a delay. It's been almost a week. I needed a little break from politics. I was, I was telling some of my work colleagues and some of my friends outside of work that I needed, I needed a little break. I've been following sports. I was trying to follow sports to be a little bit like a little bit more isolated from politics because politics is just so toxic and depressing right now. So I was trying to do a thing where I follow politics during the week and then watch sports over the weekend. Of course, as you guys know, I'm a Packers fan. Aaron Rodgers, no longer a Packer, but someone I still really cherish. I really respect. Tears his Achilles like 90 seconds into the 9-11 Monday night football game <sighs> against the Bills. They end up winning, but it was just heartbreaking on so many levels to watch Aaron Rodgers hyped up going to the Jets. Huge contract tears his Achilles out for the season. A lot of questions about whether he comes back now. He's 39. Does he come back or is this the end? As a Packers fan, I'm happy to see Jordan Love progressing better than I was expecting. But at the same time, it's just painful to see the guy that got me into football, the guy that inspired me to like the Packers, a guy that made me willing to question authority, willing to stand up to the powers to be. It's a shame to see him just kind of become somewhat of a laughingstock. I think a lot of people wanted to see him fail, and unfortunately, he is injured. So, yeah, this is not, you know, politics-related, but it was just really a shame to see. And I'm so glad my buddy Jake and I went and saw the Packers-Vikings game in Lambeau in Green Bay New Year's Day last year because one of his last games is a Packer, and it's starting to look like one of his last games ever. And it's, it's just really sad. But anyways, so that, that's why I'm back to politics is because the NFL has actually left me kind of depressed as well. But anyways, um, yeah, I am here. I am here. And we're going to talk. Today I kind of want to mainly focus on Mitt Romney, who has said he is not going to run for re-election. And there's a, now a book actually coming out by McKay Coppins, um, Romney, A Reckoning, book coming out, good article. We're going to get into that. Basically, I want to talk about Mitt Romney and kind of how he was focused on legacy, oath, the Constitution, getting work done as a Congress, or sorry, as a senator, and how he thinks the Senate became a re-election machine where people were just calculating how to win re-election. He's an interesting case study into personal acclaim versus kind of the weight of conscience. So I want to talk about that, but first I should mention, and I'll get into this probably tomorrow or the next day, depending on how my calendar works, Hunter Biden has been indicted by the special counsel on gun charges. From my understanding, the main thing here is that he lied on his application to get firearms. He also has like quite a good, uh, I think it's like half a million dollars in unpaid taxes, so Hunter Biden is being indicted on federal gun charges. And also there's an impeachment inquiry that the House Republicans are putting out against Joe Biden. 
the problem with this entire thing is that they are openly admitting that they don't actually have enough evidence to actually impeach him or hope that he actually gets convicted in the Senate. But, but, but their argument is that they're going into this impeachment inquiry to find evidence. It is literally the definition of a fishing expedition. It's insane. I, I, I just really, it's, it's just interesting. This is projection at its finest because for a long time, obviously, we know, you know, House, Senate, federal Republicans, all of them have said Democrats are coming after us for hyped up partisan political witch hunts. But now, literally, you have everyone from Nancy Mace to Kevin McCarthy saying they're not sure where the evidence is, but they're opening up this inquiry to find the evidence. I guess that's okay in theory, because, of course, I would like to know if there's anything damning about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. But at the same time, this does seem partisan. And as I've talked about on previous episodes, I think this is going to backfire. But this is not going to be the scope of tonight's episode, because I am just just exhausted of this, and I want to talk about Mitt Romney. So first... I think it's important to note that a lot of people, even on the more populist left and populist right side, are happy to see why Mitt Romney's going. Now, I'll just say up front, I'm not happy he's going, but a lot of people are happy for at least the justification he has for why he's going, and that is that the Senate has become a nursing home, a boomer, geristocratic system that everyone is there for self-preservation and not for actually making the country better, and that he wants new blood. Now, I, I will get into later why I think that's part of the answer, but also I think that Romney just actually wanted to help the country, wanted to do the job of a senator, and he was intellectually capable of doing it, and he was just disheartened when he got there. I'll get into that in a minute, but I do want to play what he said, I think two days ago now, about how he does think that it's time for new blood. And I think that is respectable to a certain extent, especially when we see people like Mitch McConnell, uh, Senator Grassley, Chuck Grassley of Iowa. We see Dianne Feinstein, Nancy Pelosi, even to some extent Joe Biden, people that have been there for so long and we need new blood. I think Mitt Romney does rightfully understand that is important. But I do think that, that the times we're living in really demand the next generation to step up and, uh, and express their point of view. And to make the decisions that will shape our American politics over the coming century. And just having a bunch of guys who were around, the baby boomers, who were around in the post-war era, we're not the right ones to be making the decisions for tomorrow. So now, sorry, sorry, loud there. Um, so McKay Coppins, obviously writing the book, or it's, it's going to come out soon, Romney, A Reckoning. Interestingly enough, Mitt Romney has compiled journals that he's written, his own thoughts. He was very candid with McKay Coppins. But he also didn't want to write an autobiography because he didn't think he would do it in a non-biased way. And so it sounds like he was really willing to let McKay Coppins write this, which I think actually is a really good testament to Romney's character. But before I get into the other stuff of it, just on that clip I played, there's some interesting things in the book. And I think this is something that a lot of people are applauding about Romney's observations kind of involving the age of the Senate and the self-preservation we see there. Um, The Atlantic article, which is kind of a summarization of um, Coppins' book, and and, and the articles by Coppins as well, it talks about how Romney, towards the end of his time in the Senate, obviously he's not going to run again, he's still in the Senate, but he talks about how he was fascinated with the strange kind of ecosystem inside of the Senate. 
Romney actually worked out a lot. He uh, Something I've really learned about him over the years is he's really fixated on his health. He's afraid of death. He's had a lot of premonitions about that, and he's very superstitious about his own death, so he takes care of himself. And he would spend his mornings in the Senate gym, and he would obviously run into other colleagues while he was there. And he kind of became somewhat of a social scientist or an anthropologist of some sorts. And he actually wrote some of these observations down in his journal. And he talked about how Richard Burr would walk on the treadmill in his suit pants and loafers. Sherrod Brown, Dick Durbin would go on exercise bikes and pedal so slow. Romney was hoping they were on like high resistance, but Durbin was like on one. And in quotes, Brown was on eight. Romney said in his journal, my setting is 15, not that I'm bragging. (laughs) But I'm going to read this little segment from the Atlantic article because I think it's interesting. It it writes here, um, the, the, the Coggins part, it writes here in quotes, he joked to friends that the Senate was best understood as a club for old men. There were free meals, on-site barbers, and doctors within 100 feet at all times. But there was an edge to the observation. The average age in the Senate was 63 years old. Several members, Romney included, were in their 70s or even 80s, and he sensed that many of his colleagues attached an enormous psychic currency to their position, that they would do almost anything to keep it. He said in his journal, most of us have gone out and tried playing golf for a week, and it was like, okay, I'm going to kill myself. (laughs) Job, and then the article continues, job preservation in this context became almost existential. Retirement was death. The men and women of the Senate might not need their government salary to survive, but they needed the stimulation, the sense of relevance, the power. And I think as I get into more of the insights on Romney, and why I think it's a shame he's leaving. I think that's something really important to note in all of this, because I think self-preservation is why a lot of the Republicans basically went crazy, because in one point in his, in his um, interviews for this book, Romney talks about how he is just furious with people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. He says, in quotes, they know better. Josh Hawley is one of the smartest people in the Senate, if not the smartest, and Ted Cruz could give him a run for his money. They were too smart, and then Romney apparently believed that they were too smart to actually think that Trump had won the election. But Romney then said they were making a calculation. They put politics above the interests of liberal democracy and the Constitution. And I I think when you have a Senate that... You know, obviously you have six-year terms, but at the end of the day, it's really hard to be an outsider and to beat an, to beat an incumbent, right? And so a lot of insiders want to keep their job. They don't want to piss off their primary voters. They don't want to piss off their constituencies, and they know that they want to be in there for the long run because being one of 100 people is a pretty fucking nice gig if you can get it. And that's going to make smart people do stupid things. And Romney in the book also talks about how J.D. Vance was one of his most depressing revelations because Romney apparently invited J.D. Vance to one of his Park City events. He loved Hillbilly Elegy and saw this poor kid who grew up in a chaotic Appalachian family who correctly had a prescription and description of Trumpism to then all of a sudden create an alter ego and dive into it and weaponize identity politics, weaponize immigration, weaponize um, partisanship. Romney just seems disgusted. And 
I think what I would say here is that Romney, maybe it's his background, maybe it's his wealth. It seems like something in Romney's life isolated him from the idea that things could be this broken. And as I keep talking, I think you guys are under, are going to start to understand that that is maybe my biggest, if not most important, takeaway from all of this is that I think Mitt Romney came into the Senate really thinking he could do something. He'd been the governor of Massachusetts. He had almost, you know, he'd been one election away from becoming president of the United States. Like, this is a guy who I think had a fairly optimistic look at what could happen in the United States. This is a guy who did his homework. This is a guy who had always wanted to be there. And whether you disagree with him politically or not, this is a guy who did his homework at all times. And I think he came in, like, he was older already. He was in his mid-70s. I guess early seven, trying to do the math. So he's 77, I think now. Quote me if I'm wrong. I don't have it in front of me, but he's now in his late 70s. So yeah, he would have been in his mid to early 70s when he first got elected after Trump uh, to be the, you know, to fill Orrin Hatch's seat in Utah as senator. And I think he really thought he could go in there and fix things. But I, I think probably the, this is not the beginning of his time there, but I want to start with this as kind of a, I guess a telling testament to what he came to see. So there's a guy named Angus King, 79-year-old senator for Maine. He's an independent, not a Democrat, not a Republican. He was the governor of Maine, actually, as well, from 95 to 2003. I would say, in a moral sense, he is very similar to Mitt Romney, I've always thought Angus King is a little more left-leaning than Mitt Romney. But anyways, basically, Romney gets a call, and he talks with Angus King. This is, I think it was like January 1st or 2nd of 2021, so a little less than a week before January 6th. And Senator King informs Romney of a conversation that he had with Pentagon officials, high-ranking ones. And basically, law enforcement had been tracking a lot of dangerous online conversations, mainly on the right, and it was mainly right-wing extremists, obviously, that were planning something bad on Donald Trump's rally that was going to be held on January 6th. Remember, Trump said it's going to get wild. You had people like Tori, or, uh, Tario, um, Alex Jones, Oath Keepers, Roger Stone, all these, all these people kind of alluding to something crazy going down, and Of course, Angus King apparently says these Pentagon officials had said that there was going to be talks of gun smuggling, bombs, arson, targeting the so-called traitors like Mike Pence in Congress and, you know, obviously the vice presidency who were responsible for all of this. And apparently Romney was one of the people that was popping up in a lot of this chatter because obviously Romney was always somewhat of a never-Trumper, somewhat of a Trump critic, someone that never believed all of the election bullshit. So it was obvious that he was someone that would probably be hung along with Mike Pence. And basically, Angus King said that they needed to talk because he wasn't sure that Romney would be safe. And, you know, hearing these, these reports in hindsight, it's really troubling to me, guys, because these are elected officials that are just meant to be one person out of a hundred to try to make our country better. And to know that you have two of a hundred talking to a 50th of our U.S. Senate talking to one another about worries and threats that could be coming down the pipeline. 
It's interesting. So then Romney sends a text, and it says here in quotes, this is the text. In case you, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, let me, let me backtrack. So Romney gets all this information from Angus King, Senator King of, of Maine, and then Romney texts Mitch McConnell, and he said this in the text. In case you have not heard, I just got a call from Angus King, who said that he had spoken with a senior official at the Pentagon who has reports that they are doing very disturbing social media traffic regarding the protest planned on the 6th. There are calls to burn down your home, Mitch, to smuggle guns into D.C. and to storm the Capitol. I hope that sufficient security plans are in place, but I am concerned that the instigator, the president, is the one who commands the reinforcements the D.C. and the Capitol Police might require. All reasonable stuff, and obviously hindsight is, I guess, 2020, but all that happened, right? And I guess the damning thing here is that Mitch, 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 Mitch McConnell, God, I can't speak. Sorry, it's a little bit later for me, you know, post-trivia and all this stuff, but Mitch McConnell apparently never responds to any of this. Never responds. And we're going to go back now, but I think that sums up probably why Romney was telling the lovely gentleman, McKay Coppins, who wrote the book, Romney, A Reckoning, and this Atlantic article I'm referencing, I think that's why, even before we knew it, he had told Coppins he didn't plan to run again. Because I think Romney felt that there was not much hope to do anything. And Romney has always been a go-getter, someone who had a lot of plans and was always striving for change, for productivity, and to be a decent human being working as a legislator. And I think Romney just his overtime realized that's not possible. He is almost the antithesis to the Josh Hawleys and the Ted Cruz's. And I think that's why, in a sense, he became so hated amongst the MAGA right is because he held a mirror up to Lindsey Graham. He held a mirror up to Josh Hawley. He held a big mirror up to Ted Cruz because as they changed, because it was a calculation for their reelection, Romney decided he would rather do his duty as a senator than go down this dangerous partisan rabbit hole that could that could literally erode our constitution. Now, I think it's important to get into the lead up to this because obviously Romney now has become a pariah in a sense because he has balls and he's able to stand up. But I, 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 I'm more fascinated in a sense with kind of Romney's moment in history. He was the last presidential Republican candidate before Donald Trump, right? Him and Paul Ryan lose to Obama and Biden in 2012. Obviously, Trump wins in 2016. So Romney is actually the last presidential candidate nominee for the party that was kind of the old guard. So he has probably seen a lot of shit. And what I mean here is he went from the guy who is like one election away from being the leader of the free world to kind of becoming a pariah. And I guess that is probably something worth mentioning is that that probably does take a lot of attacks on your ego. You were someone who probably had to turn down interviews because everyone wanted to talk to you because you were the guy to then being this kind of milquetoast Bush-era Republican that never saw eye-to-eye with Trump, always quietly criticized Trump, and then got louder and louder as time went on. I think that's an interesting social experiment all in its own, is being the last of the old guard. 
Because, I mean, that's what Romney was. Romney was the last of the old guard. And, and I guess in a sense, that's probably why he's become so hated by the new right. It's because he was the old right. He was the right that they kind of rose against, right? This is the right that Trump rallied against to eventually kind of take over the party. And there's a lot of interesting conversations to be had because I don't agree with Romney on everything. Like, I do think he's a little bit too in the, you know, lower taxes, cut spending, lower Social Security. Like, I don't agree with Romney on his economics completely, but I agree on his moral moral fortitude. But anyways, I, I think we have to remember that, that, again, this is a guy who goes from losing to Barack Obama to kind of going out into the wilderness for a little bit. Then he is encouraged by friends to take the open seat in Utah. We do need to remember as well that Utah still is, it was, and it still is to some extent, much more hesitant towards Donald Trump. The Mormon faith is a lot more pragmatic than I think a lot of people would assume. And it's taken the Mormons a lot longer to kind of get on board with a lot of the crazier sides of Trump. I think all you have to do is look at at Utah's abortion laws, Utah's drug laws, just to name a few, to really understand that, like, it's not that radical of a state. Obviously, Mike Lee, batshit crazy. But at the same time, we have to remember that Spencer Cox, the current governor of Utah, who is a Republican, not much of a Trumper either, and someone who has kind of been kind of rallying against some of the policies of Mike Lee, President Trump, etc. More of a Jared Polis than, say, a Greg Abbott. So I, I, I think Romney came into the Senate thinking he could change that. But the thing is, is that when Romney came to the Senate, he didn't really have many friends. And according to that Atlantic article, which, again, I recommend people read, again, McKay Coppins, I'll shout him out, Apparently, Romney would eat dinner alone watching Ted Lasso or Better Call Saul, also two great choices, but um, there's a good line in the Atlantic article. It writes here, in less than a decade, he'd gone from a Republican standard bearer and presidential nominee to party pariah thanks to a series of public clashes with Trump. But then Cockins writes here, what I didn't quite expect was how candid he would be. And then he explains that And I I like this about Mitt Romney. He instructed his scheduler to block off meetings, block off evenings for weekly interviews, and he he told the author that no subjects would be off limits, which is rare. He also handed over hundreds of pages of his private journals and years worth of personal correspondence, including emails, and some of them were the most, with some of the most powerful Republicans in the country. And when he couldn't find a key, apparently in old filing cabinets, he would just take a crowbar to him, and he basically kept all of his stuff. And uh, again, like I said earlier, he wanted to write a memoir, but he didn't think he could be objective enough, so he got Coppins to do it. And I think one of the most damning lines from his, I believe it's from his journals or his interviews with Coppins, he says, in quotes here, a very large portion of my party really doesn't believe in the Constitution. And apparently he really formed that view after January 6th and the coup and just how his colleagues responded to it. And that is completely understandable. And apparently it was then into 2022, 2023, when he confided through Coppins into this book that he would not seek re-election. 
And from his words, the decision was part political and it was part actuarial. And this is kind of where you get into him realizing that he was in his late 70s and apparently most men in his family had died earlier than expected, I guess, of a sudden heart attack. And he said in quotes, do I want to spend eight of the 12 years I have left sitting here and not getting anything done? But apparently what also kept him up at night was that his time in the Senate had left him worried. He said in quotes here, not just about the decomposition of his own party, but about the fate of the American project. Now, I want you guys to deal with me for a second here because this is going to be kind of long. So apparently he had a map on the wall of his Senate office. And it was first printed in 31, 1931 for you kids. <laughs> and it was by Rand McNally. And it was a histo map that apparently charted the rise and fall of pretty much the most powerful civilizations over the last like four or 5,000 years. And this to me shows his curiosity, which is what I wish all senators had in a sense, of like what makes a civilization thrive and what makes one perish. And apparently after January 6th, according to that, that Atlantic article I'm mainly referencing in this, apparently he really became obsessed with this. And he would show the map to visitors. And here are some highlights of that map, because I looked it up as well just to get some ideas of it. And so you have the Egyptian Empire reigning for like 900 years, but it was overtaken by the Assyrians, modern-day Syria, more or less. Then you had the Persians, the Romans, the Mongolians, the Turks... Each civilization kind of had its moment in time, you could say, kind of involved in that region. And I, I think what really got to Romney was that you had a mix of pharaohs, emperors, kings, kaisers, dictators, all in there. But Romney really noticed that you had different societies, but there was always a power that came towards oppression and domination towards others, mainly mainly uh, advanced by dictators. I, I don't know if I'm finding the correct words to really advance that in my own way, but he, he basically was worried that all of these rises and falls did come from a society leaning more towards oppression and domination. And... He said in quotes here, a man gets some people around him and begins to oppress and dominate others. It's a testosterone-related phenomenon, perhaps. I don't know. But in the history of the world, that's what happens. American, uh, sorry, um, America's experiment in self-rule is fighting against human nature. That is something really deep, guys. That is something really deep, and this is a guy that, I mean, I'm, uh, by the way, I was going to get to this at the end, but I am not happy he's resigning. Because this is a guy that actually truly understands how unique and special the American experience is. It is very rare, I think, to have a society dominated by a constitutional representative republic that tries to, to basically move away from our past. And he, he has enough of an IQ and enough brain power to understand that civilizations are always overtaken by others and that society always can lead to oppression and domination and fascism or dicta like authoritarianism or whatever you want to call it. And he understands that the United States' experiment in self-rule is 
an anomaly. And I think that is what really dominates his view. And I think that's why a lot of people have really have really hoped he would be able to do a lot. Part of the article talks about how he had a list of things he wanted to do to help better our democracy. Guys, we have to remember that after January 6th, he started to understand that he couldn't do a lot. So instead, he started meeting with people like Joe Manchin, other moderate Democrats. He started to just try to create bipartisan caucuses just so they could at least get things done because he had a higher understanding of what this country needed. He also puts out some interesting ideas about how like high-minded people like him don't get into high office, and he noticed just the degradation of what was happening in the U.S. Senate. He said here at one point, and I actually highlighted this, he said in quotes, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And I, th- I think he saw that. And one of the interesting insights as well, and I, I know I'm going all over the place here, so I, I hope this all kind of comes together well, but he talks about Mitch McConnell. And prior to his time in the Senate, he had just heard that Mitch McConnell was this intelligent leader that could appease all parties and bring everyone together and make things work. And he was a, he, he, basically he ran the Senate with an iron fist. But the Atlantic article writes here, observing him in action, in quotes, Romney realized that McConnell rarely resorted to threats or coercion. He was primarily a deft manager of egos who excelled at telling each of his colleagues what they wanted to hear. This often left Romney guessing as to which version of McConnell was authentic, the one who did Trump's bidding in public or the one who exorciated him in their private conversations. And, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's sad to me because this is a guy who I truly think had a higher demand. Here's another example, actually. So do you guys remember the what Trump called, well, it was one of Trump's perfect phone calls. It was the one where, you know, you had him, uh, Trump pressuring, Zelensky. it was the first impeachment where Trump pressured Zelensky. And, and this was basically, I think it was July 25th of what, 2017 or 18, after Trump basically asked for an investigation into a debunked conspiracy theory about the election and Vice President Joe Biden. Basically, the White House was withholding military aid to Ukraine because Trump wanted them to look into Hunter Biden and his dealings with Burisma Energy Holdings, all that stuff. You guys remember that. Trump was obviously acquitted eventually. It was a whole thing. But, you know, there's a really interesting section of this Atlantic piece, and it's going into the book, how Mitt Romney, like, that was the one where Lindsey Graham said there's no way you can expect me to be a juror or an objective juror. We're just going to defend Trump. But on the contrary to that, Romney basically came in with uh, with a notepad, listened to the arguments, and he was really morally, ethically, judicially, politically weighing whether to acquit Trump or not. And actually, Romney did go towards acquitting Trump be- because of just the situation at hand. But... I I really encourage people to read this article because it goes into how Romney really took the time to actually understand the case and to be a neutral arbitrator, which is what he's supposed to be. 
And again, I think this is also why Romney was so unpopular with others that at one time would have been his allies, because he did hold a mirror up to their con, you know, their their controversy, their hypocrisy, all of that, because he was willing to actually do what they were supposed to do. And I think all of them knew it. And throughout this piece and throughout the book, Romney talks about the conversations he had with everyone from like Lindsey Graham to Josh Hawley to Ted Cruz to Mitch McConnell about how they were all jealous that his constituency allowed him to do this. And we have to remember that that is the argument that a lot of the MAGA hesitant Trump supporters have used is that, oh, democracy allows you to do this. They are literally using the shield of democracy to perpetuate their autocratic principles, their unwillingness to look at truth. And Mitt Romney just didn't see into that bullshit. He was very willing to hold his ground and fight. And I think the first impeachment of Trump was a really telling point. And we have to remember that Romney was then, I I believe, the only senator to decide to vote to convict. And that was very telling, and I think that was also damning for him, because after this, he really had to then start (laughs) making allies in uncomfortable places. I'm going to end this by reading one of the last passages that I wrote down from the Atlantic article, because I think it's really important. And this is Coggins again talking with Mitt Romney and their, you know, hours of conversations. I mean, not not even hours, probably thousands of hours, I would imagine, by the end of this. But he writes here in quotes, Before sitting down, Romney posed a question to his fellow senators, a question that whether he realized it or not, he'd been wrestling with himself for nearly his entire political career. Do we weigh our own political fortunes more heavily then we weigh the strength of our own republic, the strength of our democracy, and the cause of freedom. What is the weight of personal acclaim compared to the weight of conscience? Conscience, sorry. You know, guys, I, I am sad. I am sad. I'm deeply sad, almost depressed, that Mitt Romney is leaving. I, like to, I, I would like to think that someone better will come, and I hope there's a free and fair democratic election that can do that. But at this time and place, the Mitt Romneys are they, are, they are political unicorns. And I consider myself somewhat of a unicorn. Everything from my, my own personal preferences to my voting preferences, I consider myself a unicorn. And I would, I would always vote for a Romney because of that. Because he has such a nuanced opinion on just how our system works, and he actually cares to do the research to understand it. And he's more concerned with the system and how to preserve it than preserving himself. And I don't know if we'll find someone else like that. Disagreeing with Romney is one thing politically, but losing him in the Senate right now I think is actually quite disappointing. It's quite disappointing to me. And I just see our politics getting more divided and more broken. And I was watching former senator of California boxer on CNN, and she only had nice things to say about him just because of his classiness, his values, his standards, his willingness to do homework, his drive to better our constitutional republic. That is what we need in leaders. 
So, yeah, I mean, some people are celebrating him stepping down because he doesn't want to be an old guy in office and he wants new blood. He's not the one that needs to go. He is sharp. He is on top of it. I will probably never agree with a Mormon conservative on everything, obviously, but he's not the type of person that needs to go. It's the Josh Hawley's, it's the Ted Cruz's that have just calculated that self-preservation is better than any ethical, moral compass. And that's what breaks my heart, is these are the people leaving time and time again. And as I tell people, we can keep pointing fingers. You can say the Republicans want to bring this country down. Or, or if you're a Republican, you can say the Democrats have become too left or Biden is trying to jeopardize this country, which is I just think is an insane point. But one way or another, we are all in this together. So if the ship is sinking, it doesn't really matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. We're all on the ship and there's limited lifeboats. Only so many people can move to Switzerland. Only so many people can flee to a different country with dual citizenship and start over. I mean... Most people, we are on this Titanic, and it's sinking. And we need to realize that we need people that actually care about the process, that care about bipartisanship, that care about understanding why our Constitution still exists, why this self-rule experiment is so important. And I hate to say it, but most of the MAGA heads out there, or the maggots, They don't care, and I'm worried that this is going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy where we bring all of us down. We bring both parties down, and that's not what I want to see either. So, Mitt, I appreciate your service. I didn't vote for you in—the first election I ever voted was the 2012 election, sorry. I voted for Obama, but good God, I would have voted for you in any other election— I really would have because your moral compass is something that I, th- I really hope history books write about and remember. Anyways, that'll do it for tonight, guys. Hopefully my rantings did not exhaust you too much. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Anyways, I got to get to bed because I'm hoping to try out a new run tomorrow, which I'm excited about. So have a good night. Catch you later.